0: All right. guys can find your seats. Welcome those of you listening online. You will be able to find this series on Facebook Live and also uh, through our podcast. If you look up Metro Praise International, you will find our podcast. And then there is also, uh, we're also on sermon.net as well. We have an archive player, correct? That's That's still up and running. So we have all of these ways. And and the reason I say that is you have uh, a free college course on the book of Acts right now through our chapels. Pastor Joe has been teaching and will teach through the whole book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, precept upon precept. We're going to continue in Acts chapter 2 today. I think we had a taste. We were not only talking about it, we were being about it. And uh, now we're going to hear the theology and the word behind it. Welcome our pastor and visionary leader, Joe Y. Rostek.
1: You, pastor Jared. Thank you, Pastor Jared. We love you, and we love to be here. Those of you who are wondering why we have such a formal introduction, it does help with our recordings, but it also gets us all focused on what we're here to do. Open up your Bibles with me to the book of Acts chapter 2, or as we are calling it, the Pentecostal Handbook chapter 2. Today we're going to learn in the Pentecostal Handbook how to pattern ourselves against uh, after the New Testament church. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47 is where we left off last week. So we got into the beginning of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, uh, Peter's uh, inauguration, inaugural message to the the crowd, and now we get a summary from Luke the historian. We get a summary of what the New Testament church looked like in that time. We understand just a few verses prior that over 3,000 people Accepted Jesus. So now the church is starting to grow. The people are starting to follow Jesus and it's going to now uh, begin to get organized. And so that's what we're going to see in the Pentecostal handbook is how they organize the church. Now, one of the things that I want you to know is that the organization of the church comes from the organism of the body of Christ. Write that down, please. The organism, the living body of Christ, organizes the activities the church will do. So we will have all of these things, and we should have all of these things in the church today, but not in a building sense, but in a personal sense, in a relational sense. The church is not a brick and border building. It is a place where the church, the organism, meets. And so the organism, the living body of Christ, begins to structure itself by the Holy Spirit, And as we'll see if we even pull into this, which I hope to do, the chronological order of the epistles during the book of Acts, you'll be able to see when some of those letters are actually being written while we're going through the history of Acts. So don't get in your mind that the whole book of Acts has to end before certain books of the Bible like Galatians, like James, like Thessalonians are being written. No, as a matter of fact, they're being written during the time period of the book of Acts. Does everybody understand that? You don't understand it? Some of my new folks, I'm going to explain it to you. Everybody look up at me. The timeline of the book of Acts is going to cover about 30 years. During that 30-year period, it's telling you about Paul doing different things and the church doing different things. But guess what they're also doing in those time periods? They're writing the other books of the Bible. Now, do you understand? So that means when you look at the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians is going to be written sometime around uh, Acts chapter 11, 12, sometime probably before or after the Jerusalem council, depending on when they uh, note that. And I think the Jerusalem council is what chapter? Acts 15. Sorry. So way further into the book of Acts Uh, I was thinking of um, Ananias and Sapphira and some of those issues. Where's Ananias? What's what's in Acts chapters? uh, No, seven is the deacons. That's what I was thinking. Sorry. And seven is Ananias and Sapphira. Stephen. Stephen, let's go. Five is Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter six, deacons. Acts chapter seven is Stephen. Acts chapter eight is Paul's conversion. Acts. Philip and Samaria, Acts chapter 9 is Paul's conversion with Peter and Cornelius's house. That's where I was getting it tied into. Thank you. And then Acts 15 is the council of Jerusalem. Here we have our professor to help us. Isn't that amazing? Okay, let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 now to see how they start organizing themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. excuse me, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now in my notes, what you can see that I did is I started adding the practical applications of what they were doing. And I have found 10 of them. And this is also a part of our church, what we call the tenfold ministry structure of Metro Praise International. Now, this has been around almost as long as our vision and goal and strategy has been around. I think we developed this within the first couple of years of the church. The vision, loving God and loving people, with the strategy, connect, mentor, send, and the goal of 100,000 churches, 100,000 disciples with 50 churches in Chicago, 500 around the world, was all done before we launched. After the launch, going back into the scriptures, I noticed that we needed to really structure our leadership And then I began to develop what we now know as the elder and deacon categories, the three kinds of elders, apostolic, pastoral, and governing, and then the kinds of deacons that we have just generally speaking. But there could be multiple levels of deacons there. And none of that is necessarily, uh, you know, like put in concrete. It could change over time. It was just something that we needed to structure as a living organism like they were to help uh, guide the growth. And then taking from this example, and I took that from the examples of the the epistles, and you'll see it in Acts as well, uh, how we structured our um, our eldership with our deacons. So basically, I considered Paul, the apostolic elder, writing to Timothy, the pastoral elder, to how to manage and govern the elders he had with them, the governing elders, and then the deacons serving those elders. So there it's found in the epistles, This kind of that structure, but just simply it's elders and deacons. Excuse me, now when it comes to uh, the tenfold ministry structure, you could probably find within this passage, Acts chapter 242 through 47, maybe a hundred different kinds of ministries. But I think I did my best to summarize them with ten. And I've challenged other pastors, and I'll challenge you as Bible college students. If you can come up with a unique category, let me know. And even during the sermon, let me know at the end if you can come up with a unique category category because i'm all about uh finding new things in the scripture but i'm also about condensing information so a lot of times somebody will think they can add something to this but i'll say but isn't that kind of what would go in here and if you know if we're going to say that this doesn't cover this then are we really saying we understand this so for example you'll notice that i'll have somewhere in here a church service and you may say well You know, you have nowhere here worship times, you know. Well, worship times go into a church service. And if you say, no, they're actually separate because you can have a church service without worship, then I'll say, what kind of church service are you having? Right? Do you get my point there? And so uh, now somebody may say, well, prayer meetings could also be said of the same thing. Yeah, but he listed prayer meetings separately. So I have to deal with it separately. Otherwise, I could put it into other categories. So the things that are separate, we want to keep separate. He lists. Like I said here, at least 10 things, and then I think I've summarized those pretty well. I think he lists... um Eight things, depending on whether or not you want to put all things in common in signs and wonders, that could be nine and ten. But either way, I can bind the bunch towards the end. So let's read it again, and you'll see the tenfold ministry structure that I believe all churches should be patterned after. Okay, and I also have written about this in our 201 book, Disciples That Make Disciples, and in uh, Discipleship-Based Churches, the book that helps pastors. And by the way, by God's grace... We sell over 100 books online every single month. Over 1,000 books are sold through Kindle. Isn't that amazing? That's the glory to be to God. From a high school dropout, now to an author that has out there at any given time 1,000 to 1,200 books a year. And that's why I've encouraged this man right here to get his work out there because I think it would sell even better because I think he's a better author. And he helped me write portions of a couple of the books. Now watch as I add in here as what we would call hermeneutics, exegesis. I'm preaching it to you. I'm exegeting the scripture. I'm trying to make it applicable to our time. Let's see if I do this well as a standard model for all of our churches as something we should all check off on. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I think in that category is discipleship and Bible college. Now, you could take out Bible college and say Bible college comes way later in church history, and I would absolutely agree, and discipleship could cover Bible college. I would, I would not argue with that at all and go right to nine except for the fact in the modern world we differentiate between church-based discipleship and vocational training, what we call Bible college. So I believe it's helpful for the 21st century to do that. Now I have thoughts on how Bible college can be brought back into discipleship but it's going to take technology and a lot of other things to catch up to it and I think we can get there and Jared has heard me share some of my ideas and I give my ideas away for free, by the way. I've given them away to other Bible colleges. I've mentioned them to SUM. Anybody can have and use my ideas. I don't copyright my ideas. I'm not I'm not into that. I would love to share some of those ideas. I just don't have time to do it right now. But uh, if we look at apostles' teachings, what's happening there is they're learning from the apostles what's going to become scripture. And now we have the scripture, the canon's been closed, so we need to take serious what they taught. When you do that in a church setting, you can do that in Sunday school classes you can do it through one-on-one you can do it through classes class-based learning that's not necessarily on Sunday midweeks you can do it through various classes like how now we have a 301 class our discipleship runs 101 201 and that's the 101 is done one-on-one through a seven-step book that I wrote then it's done then the 201 is about a year process that's done in a classroom setting and now for elders and deacons we've started 301 which tomorrow we're going to be doing a debate with our atheists because we've been looking learning about evidence for God. So tune in to us or check that out online to What Do You Believe? Now, those things can cover discipleship, but then like I said, in the 21st century, we differentiate that from Bible college. Now, college, which was first known as universities, started from Christians. Christians started universities. Christians started what we now know as medical, as modern-day hospitals. There was medicine practice, obviously, before Christians, but we developed what we now know as hospitals, we developed universities, and we developed scientific methods. Okay, so kind of some big things Christians have done throughout the years. And by the way, we also developed democracy. America was the first of its kind to have a democracy in which the nation submitted religion to a Christian ideal, but the Christian religion was not in charge. So, if you think democracy is important, if you think hospitals are important, if you think university and higher education is important, and if you think that little old thing we call science is important, you ought to get on your bended knee and thank God for the church. Because the church is the pillar of all truth, all truth, not just spiritual truth all truth. It is the functionality upon the the world of the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ functions through the body of Christ. And I was just listening here to Alvin Plantingo, one of the greatest philosophers of our time. And yes, he is a Christian, but he is noted among all philosophers to be one of the best, if not the best living philosopher of our time. No surprise, because that's what Christians do. And you need to be the best at what you do. Amen? And that's why you need to all get 4.0s. You need to be on the dean's list and you need to work hard. If you miss and you get a B, and you told me you do your best, I'll still be happy with that. But I want you to tell me in your eyes, you didn't look me in the eyes and you tell me you did your best, amen. Because I would not expect anything less of my children. And I know some of you are old enough to be my peers, but I'm just saying, as I'm here to help you, I want to encourage you to do what I would expect my own family and my own wife to do to get straight A's, invest yourself into the class, and grow in knowledge. So we have the discipleship and Bible college and to fellowship. Now fellowship's easy because all we have to do is just take that category and expound on it to our time and place and apply it to how we would consider fellowship to be beneficial to our culture. And so fellowship can be meals together, eating and drinking and sharing life together. It could be now uh, playing sports together. It could be working out together. It, it just it needs to involve Christian friendship. It needs to involve friends that are Christians that have a common bond and that share life together. Okay, that's fellowship. And of course, it can get as deep as sharing tears together and sharing frustrations and accountability but it doesn't necessarily always need to be that. The next part, it says to the breaking of bread and to prayer. What we believe here, that breaking of bread is going to be separate from, um, and, and when it says they broke bread in their homes, most people believe because the breaking of bread here is connected to prayer, that this is communion in a sacred setting with the prayer meeting. Now, You have to understand the way we do communion is not the way they did communion. So there may just be a repetition of the breaking of bread here. The reason why I say that is because we think communion is to the point where it's almost Roman, Roman Catholic in a way, and I'm really trying to find ways to dis- dis- differentiate us as Protestants from the Roman Catholics. Let me back up and explain this. So the Roman Catholics give you the communion, like the priest gives it to you, right? And it's like really small, and it's a little bit of wine in a, in a, in a glass, and it's a little bit of bread, and they have to put it in your mouth. And when you come to the Protestant church, very similar, like we're giving it to you. If you get it from our church, it comes in a cup, you know, grape juice, and then it has a little wafer on top. That is not how they took communion in the early church. And if you look to the, uh, the records that, that we see in Corinthians when Paul is explaining what it looked like, and here's how we know what it was supposed to look like by his rebuke of telling them what they were doing wrong. So what they were doing wrong draws the picture of what they were supposed to be doing right. Here's what they were doing wrong, and we know in Corinth, they were gluttoning themselves, eating the food of communion. So we know it was more than just a piece of bread. It was an entire meal, and then they were getting drunk off the wine. So they really made it just perverse by perverting, not sexual in connotation, but just perverting the the meal it was supposed to be and the wine and the celebration. They made it into a, a gluttonous feast and getting drunk. So we know that it wasn't supposed to be that. So if you minus the bad that he says they were doing, what are we left with? A fellowship meal celebrating the Lord Jesus Christ. So communion was a meal to them, similar to the Passover that Jesus had at the last supper. It wasn't the last uh, grape juice in a little plastic cup wafer. It was the last what? Supper, as we know in tradition. It was a meal. And so what I would love to do is to have on one side of our church during communion a table with the true wine that the Bible says that they use, fermented wine, with the unlovened loaves of bread or, you know, that flat bread. And so it's not technically a loaf, I don't think, you know, but that just this these big pita bread looking like things. They're big and they're flat. And then on the other side, the non-alcoholic. So you could make your own choice. Now you have to remember the traditional church, the church that's been around for over 2,000 years has always used wine. It was only in the American history for about the last 150 years during the temperance movement that we said we shouldn't use wine in communion. And actually Welch, if you research that, was the dude who developed grape juice just so that we could have non-alcoholic wine in church. So Grape juice was invented by a Christian in America to replace alcoholic wine in church. Just research it, it's a very interesting subject. Just look up Welch grape juice, the history of it. So, what I would like to do is have that table, as we would call the Lord's table, as you'll hear other places referenced in scripture, and then instead of having it be somber, I would like it to be celebratory. So we're used to taking the communion with the somber heart. That's not the tradition of the apostles. The repentance and the prayer beforehand was somber. Guarding your heart from sin, not to eat it wrongfully lest you become sick. But that would be kind of like the pre-prayer message or blessing. But then once the amen was said and the communion started, now the joy comes the fellowship, the communion with the Lord and His church. This symbolizing the last, uh, this symbolizing the Lamb's Supper that is soon to come where there will be the finest of wines, aged wine, the Bible says, the finest of fermented wine and the finest of meats prophesied in Isaiah, which we believe we will have for seven years in the presence of the Lord during the time of tribulation. And then when He comes to conquer the nations, we will have another kind of feast and a celebration. But this is a preview of that So now watch The, commun- uh, the Passover was a, a type and a shadow of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection The communion that would now happen for Christians Now knowing about Jesus And now when people take the Passover celebratory meal with the, the sense of Jesus Now we are foreshadowing the feast to come Does everybody get that? And if you've read in the scripture, especially Jesus, he talks about many will come from the east and the west and great will be that feast, right? So we are supposed to look forward to this wonderful feast. And uh, that's what I believe is included there. Now, once again, I could have separated communion and called it its own thing by putting to the breaking of bread communion and then to prayer meetings But prayer meetings will include communion, and prayer meetings can be in any of these other categories. Prayer can happen in services. Prayers can happen in discipleship meetings. Prayer meetings can happen in small groups. So we encourage you to take communion as often as your hearts desire, okay? So if you guys think that's a good idea about us having the fellowship meal of communion, how many think that would be fun? Can I hear an amen? That would really change up the way we think about it, right? We, we do the somber part at first, remember the death, burial, and resurrection, but with the amen, we come and celebrate the life together. And so maybe there's a few goblets over there and people are pouring themselves some wine and then they're dipping in their bread, they're eating it together, maybe we let that happen for 10 minutes. Now watch, some of you may think that could, that could get a little out of hand. That's still not even what they were doing. Theirs were hours long having meals of celebration. It was a party. Once again, what was Paul's problem? When they then ate too much took away the food from the others. Everybody just kept bringing enough just for their friends, and then they drank too much to where now they're actually becoming drunk and obscene. So you say, Pastor, we could become drunk and obscene. Well, yeah, if you do it wrong, but if you do it right, you can do what Paul and the New Testament church intended. And once again, think of the picture, Jesus, the Last Supper, what are they doing? They're supping, they're eating together. Now at the very least, now I was thinking about this, I've heard some people, and I've actually seen it, With Pastor Ron and his church uh, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, the vineyard there, uh, kind of a middle ground, what they would have is they would just have the broken pieces of bread, still the two tables, alcohol and non-alcohol, and then what would be expected of you is just to come by yourself, take it, dip it in the wine, so nobody's now drinking their own glasses of wine or grape juice or whatever, but you dip it in the wine, and then you eat it, and there's supposed to be a little bit of talk happening around the table. So, hey, man, I haven't seen you for a while. How's the wife and kids? Good, you know, and you're just eating your communion like that. And I really enjoyed that, and that's exactly how it was. It's just communion time, celebration music, and we came around the table, and I took the, you know, the bread, dipped it in the wine, and I ate it, and I talked to some people I'd never met before, and it just was a time to let down your garden fellowship. I thought it was awesome. The difference between our church and their church is their church is like 2,000 seats. You know what I'm saying? And they have this huge altar area. For us, it would be almost impossible, especially when we start needing these side sections again. And then just people coming from the chairs and trying to get to the table, it would be very difficult because our table would have to be small. They had these huge tables that they were able to at least accommodate 20 to 30 people at a time. And, you know, of course, most people aren't going to stand in the same spot. So, you know, there's. think of it like this. I was just at a wedding And the wedding had about 300 guests, and the dessert table section was there. But everybody was able to kind of move around it and kind of do it. But you need a lot of space. You need probably double the space we have right here. So until then, we'll keep doing communion the way we do. But I really wanted to increase your mind on this. And one of the great books that I read on this was Frank Viola. And Frank Viola wrote a book about some of the misunderstandings that we have as Christians of Christian traditions. And one of them is how we do communion. There was a misunderstanding that we thought communion was like this, even as Protestants, because we came from the Catholic Church and we're still kind of doing it with these little things. And it's like really somber. That wasn't how they celebrated communion. So... Guess what would be really cool? Let me end it on this. Imagine doing that in a life group. Imagine the single moms doing that. Imagine the youth doing that, obviously with the grape juice and so forth, but you actually having the communion meal. So there are some ideas for the youth, you know. Get some of that sparkling grape juice, you know, get some of that flat bread. get some olives and cheese and some Mediterranean food, maybe do some research on other things that they would have had at the Lord's Supper, because it wasn't identical to the Passover meal. It was not identical. The unleavened bread and the wine was the same, but it wasn't identical to everything else. You could have had whatever kind of food you want with that. So like I said, it could just be like that. Now, let me just back up again. This is amazing. Do you know that almost every religious culture does something like that around food? Do you know that they eat more food during the fast of Ramadan as Muslims than they do any other time in the year? Why? Because they break their fast with celebrations and food. Do you know that the the Hindu people, and I've been to it, it's called Pashadam. The Pashadam is a holy meal you have dedicated to your God. And I I really had to check my conscience because it was food sacrificed literally to idols. And I'm trying to minister to these guys. And I just didn't know how much I should eat and dance with them. But uh, there was just really just eating and dancing around these pagan deities, you know. And so what I tried to do during that time is just, hey, I'm going to dance for Jesus even though... They're all dancing for that God. probably wouldn't recommend that now to you guys, but I am i was crazy and wild back in the days. And I would go anywhere and everywhere. I've been to the Mormon churches and to the temple. Uh, I've been to the Watchtower, Kingdom Hall services. I've been to uh, witchcraft, uh, voodoo places. So I used to have a voodoo... Uh, a meeting above our church. They actually had another voodoo church above our church, which was kind of crazy. Uh, you can ask Troy Bond about those funny stories, doing Santa Ria. And uh, then we had uh, tarot card readers, Satanists that I would hang out with all the time, did the holy meal, Pashada, multiple times with them. Uh, sometimes I just wouldn't dance. I would just eat in the cafeteria, let them do their stuff, and I would sit for the message and then try to witness to these guys that I was talking to. I've also been to their ashrams with the Hindu people. I have an ashram by my house, which is a place where the uh, the devotees will live. They'll kind of live off the land, you know, vegetarian. It's like a um, commune of some sorts. But which is really cool by where I live, there's not only an ashram there for the Hindus, there's also a very similar type of place for the Jewish people with the Chabad movement, which is the, uh, the real strict Jewish people. And they have their uh, home uh, organic garden there and a retreat center right by where I'm at. And there's also uh, the Christian retreat center that we went to with our church. So a lot of religions, I'm telling you, do retreat centers. A lot of them have food and celebration. A lot of them are are doing stuff like that. So prayer meetings are going to be times where we dedicate our, our time directly to God, lifting up the needs of the people, doing intercession, praying for each other, praying for the sick. And that will include uh, also, communion. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs done by the apostles. And so we see like right in the middle of this description here is that the apostles are doing awesome things for the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean it was only the apostles because we find out later on Stephen and Philip and a lot of these other people are doing awesome things for God as well. It's just like right here it's saying they're listening to the apostles teaching. Once again, doesn't mean they're not going to listen to Priscilla and a, I mean Apollo Uh, Priscilla and Aquila's teaching, no, Priscilla and Aquila were the good people. Yes, Anais and Sapphira were the bad people. Sometimes my mind gets lost in names. So that doesn't mean that good people aren't going to teach, but remember, it's mainly the apostles. This is just within a few weeks of the church, okay? So they're doing awesome things for the Lord. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. This was their community service. They were not socialists. Marx said that the Bible is a socialistic book, that Jesus taught socialism. Marx was a liar, okay? This is not a socialistic book. Socialism demands you to do it and says it's wrong for you to be rich and this man to be poor. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you can be rich and another one can be poor and God can bless them both, okay? Now, why is that person poor? The rich person should care about them and to help them. Is the poor person poor because they lack opportunity and ability? Then the rich person should help them, hand up, not hand out. Does everybody see the difference? But are they poor because they refuse to work? The Bible's very clear if they refuse to work, they should not eat. And even in the distribution of the goods that were given to the church, look at the list that began to develop. As a matter of fact, that's what breaks out the first fight as we see in the church, and that's Acts 6, right? The fight among the Greek widows and the Hebrew widows, the Greek culture and the Hebrew culture clashing there with the widows, and I can totally see this because I saw how people act when they are in those situations, and I could totally relate to this, okay, how people would act in those situations. I just can't even go into stories right now but I used to take care of a lot of single moms in the hood I used to help out a lot of people like that and I could totally see how the conflicts would come out there and you could see the church dealing with it but here's the deal that by the time we get to the uh, the first and second Timothy those those epistles that Paul's writing to, to Timothy who's living in Ephesus remember he's taking care of the Ephesian people we see these lists start to come out. don't put anybody on the list of a widow unless they're this old taking care of the church if they're young tell them to go remarry not to be a busybody make sure they wash the saints uh, the saints feet that means they were servants in the house they were participating in the church like housekeepers okay and uh, and then he was very clear with the men you know because with women it was harder to find jobs very clear with the men if a man doesn't work he doesn't eat send him to work send him to go work but uh, nonetheless, they had community service because they had people with lots of, of wealth and money. Maybe not all of them were wealthy, but they had enough of them for it, it to be even noticed in the Bible as we get into the next few chapters. Um, that's where we'll see the problem of Ananias and Sapphira is that people are selling houses and giving them to the church. And I don't believe they became homeless after that. And I even believe that they still had multiple houses left. So just like um, a lot of families in this church own multiple properties, I believe that those were those, uh, those kind of people and, and wealthy landowners. And we'll see later on that there's a woman named Lydia, and she deals in, in the cloth business. She's a, a purple cloth dealer, which would be a high-end cloth material. We start to see that there's lawyers. Luke himself here is a doctor. We, we've seen the centurion, uh, the, the time where the centurion uh, acts 9, where the gospel comes to him. Acts uh, 16, when he goes to the centurion's house, is is Acts Cornelius, who is a centurion though, right? The Roman jailer, jailer, yeah, but the centurion. Just make sure Cornelius was a centurion. Just make sure for me. But Cornelius' house is Acts 9. The Bible says that Peter preaches to his whole house. Uh, the centurions or people that were in the Roman uh, military that were high up could have houses as big as this church with huge uh, 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 places to meet and places to fellowship and outdoor villas and so forth. You know, If you ever saw the movie Gladiator, anybody see the movie Gladiator? You see the property he lived on, the space that he had. If you haven't seen it, I would recommend it. It's a very good touching movie. It's rated R and I don't know if you can watch that as an SUM student so maybe I don't recommend that. But uh, you'll see like these soldiers, they were rewarded this way. So we know those people existed. As a matter of fact, when we get to Barnabas, as we talked about before, Barnabas is not even his name. That's a nickname. His real name was Joseph. Barnabas, son of encouragement. bar abus. Bar means son. You know, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. He was a centurion, yes. Yeah, so he, that means he was probably higher up. He had some rank, you know, um, and he was, had a house that could fit all of his family and probably his friends, and uh, so we need to have community service as well. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. We would call the, this kind of meeting church services. Now, you have to understand, the temple wasn't a place you would go into and have church, Many times we think of the temple like we think of a church, and we got to be careful with that. You couldn't go into the temple, really, and do anything unless you were a priest, okay? You could come into the outer courts of the temple, and then you could do things there in the courts of the temple. You could teach from the temple stairs, so forth, at certain times of the year. And we believe this is where Jesus gave his famous, uh, if anyone is thirsty, let them come unto me, because the priest would be standing there on the steps, pouring out the water, representing the Holy Spirit, and he's using that as an analogy. During the temple of the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, on the last and greatest day, they would pour out that water. And he's saying, if anyone's thirsty, as the water's literally pouring down, come unto me and drink. So that's where you would do your preaching and teaching is out there. The temple was strictly for the ceremony, strictly for priests to start killing the animal. That's the uh, the altar. Uh, and then they would go into the holy place, and you would see the different things there. And then the holy of holies with the uh, you know, the Ark of the Covenant. So the church is meeting there, and that's okay. They're not yet being totally, like, outputting towards them, but, like, by the next chapter, they start getting really upset with them. So this only lasts for a few weeks before they get put out of the temple. And then they're going to start basically being put out of Jerusalem. And so not by their really their own desire. They're going to start filling Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jerusalem, Judea. At least that first part is not going to be their plan. That's going to be because they get scattered due to persecution. They got to start fleeing to Judea and Samaria, and God uses persecution. And so they, uh, so we could see like a church service would be similar to that. Now, eventually, they all go into their homes, and they don't really come out of their homes until the church becomes legal in Uh, In the Roman Empire and that happens with Constantine's conversion in 313 and then with the edict of Milan in 316 check the edict of Milan it's 316 and then it actually made Christianity the the state religion but here's the good news about that within 300 years without a military without any sword without any force the Christians brought the greatest emperor uh, the greatest empire to its knees and bowed it to Jesus Christ sadly over the next 200 years that empire started to corrupt Christianity and the Roman Catholic Church came out of that. That's why Rome became the capital of the Vatican, the Pope and all of these things and the Bishop of Rome became the head Bishop and they had to fit this and kind of work it back into church history which you know shows us how in error they are but don't fall don't fall for the Catholic, uh, the, um, the cults who try to say in 300 everything went to hell in a handbasket at that time. No th- there was a great falling away that happened over hundreds of years, and that probably didn't really even get substantiated until around 1,000 A.D., and that's when the East and West split, because when they really went off, the Orthodox Church, who kept the real traditions of the apostles, said, y'all are crazy, we're splitting off with you, and that was called the Great Schism. So I would say it wasn't until 1,000 A.D. that you would really understand what the Roman Catholic Church would be, claiming its power, claiming a pope, claiming its centrality, etc. 313 was uh, the edict of Milan and Constantine's conversion. Okay, well, thank you for that clarification. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, at this point, we could say they broke bread in their homes as another form of the Lord's Supper. Or we could say the breaking of bread here is literally just eating and having good times together. We don't know for sure because the same terminology is used for the, the feast of the Lord and for just hanging out. Um, either way, we as a church believe you should celebrate during the time of communion and when you're not having communion. So that's not gonna change either way. And we also believe that the believer, the priesthood of the believer can take communion in their home without having a certain subset of priests to feed it to you and bless it because we don't believe it becomes a literal body and blood of Jesus, obviously. And that would be life groups. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And here we see the favor of all the people and praising God could be another thing, and that just could be the success they had in the world. But sadly, the favor of all the people changes as they become a heavily persecuted group. It starts with the Jewish persecution, just moving into the next chapter. They're not done (coughs) trying to squash it out. <clears throat> excuse me, once they crucified Jesus, they thought it went away, it actually makes it worse, and that's what you're going to see in the first, <clears throat> excuse me, can I get and bottle of water, please? You're going to see that in the first couple of sermons is that they're they're correcting the Jews who are persecuting them. They're explaining to them what's going on. As a matter of fact, there with the, with Peter in Pentecost, just a few verses later, he's telling them what's going on to a mainly Jewish audience. Uh, sadly, though, the Romans start to persecute them, and that's when it gets really bad. The Jewish people... Very minimal compared to what's going to happen. You, you, you talk about Paul going around, you know, the synagogues, rounding up the Christians, uh, you know, persecuting them, possibly having them killed, so forth and so on. Thank you, sir. Nothing compared to what happened like with Nero and the rest when things happened with the Roman Empire. So, like, Jewish persecution was one level of, of bad when Nero, when, let's just think of Nero, first of all, because that became, like, the real first time it gets going crazy. Supposedly, uh, Nero blamed the Christians for a fire that he had started in Rome, and then he made the per- he made the Christians um, uh, he made it free reign to start killing them and persecuting whenever you found them, seizing their property, raping their women, taking from them. And so that's where, from that point on, really from right around 60 A.D. to the time of uh, of, of The Edict of Milan, you know, Constantine's Conversion, you have Christianity being heavily persecuted. And literally up into the end, right before Constantine's Conversion, I believe it's Diocletian. Look up Diocletian, his persecution, the emperor. We believe the Diocletian uh, uh, genocide against the Christians was the uh, the worst time to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. And then thankfully God stopped it. And so oftentimes it gets bad before it gets better. Excuse me. And so I put up today the the um, open door video of the ten most heavily persecuted. Uh, countries where Christians are suffering right now. Nine out of the ten are Islamic. The worst one, which is non-Islamic, is North Korea because that man is a lunatic. That is probably very similar to what it was like during the time of Diocletian. You had a man-god in charge, supposedly, you know, like a man-god mentality and just killing everything. I mean, it's just, you know, if you read stories about people who've escaped from North Korean concentration camps who have come out of it, it's just despicable. It's, It's no different than what Nazi Germany was doing. Diocletian, it was 303. Diocletian, thank you, was the worst and last of it in the Roman Empire. So they were enjoying the favor up until where they could, and then they persecuted them. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, that's a loaded statement right there. So I put at least three things that I can think of That really speak to how they were having the Lord add to their number daily. So it wasn't just uh, people would just show up out of nowhere... There were divine appointments, yes, like Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, but they had to go out and do evangelism. So evangelism was a key part of the church growth. The next thing was church planning and mission trips, and those just go hand in hand, and you could probably put mission trips before church planning, but they literally were going just hand in hand. We're going to go somewhere where we haven't been, and we're going to go plant a church there, and that's how Samaria gets churches there. As Philip goes to Samaria, the boom shakalaka power comes comes there I love Billy Graham but this wasn't no Billy Graham crusade this was Billy Graham 2.0 this was the Bonky crusade that's why we don't want we don't want just a Graham style revival we want to get We want what they had. We want the boom shakalaka, demons getting cast out, signs and wonders and miracles. That's what happened in Samaria, and that's what's going to happen every time they go and preach, as a matter of fact, because the Pentecostal handbook shows that they had the Pentecostal power. That was the power that Jesus had given them, and God keeps His word. And you remember in Mark chapter 16, it says, go into all the world, preach the gospel. These signs will follow those who believe, and He lists them off, you know, uh, cast out of demons, speaking in new tongues, being invincible, laying your hands on the sick. And then it says, and they went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them, confirming his word with the signs that followed. So now you see they were a church planting, evangelistic, mission-minded church. So put them all together, and here you have the list. Discipleship. Number two, Bible college. Three, fellowship. Four, prayer meetings. Five, community service. Six, church services. Seven, life groups. Eight, evangelism. Nine, church planning. Ten, mission trips. And notice how all the ministries of the church were marked by the power of the Holy Spirit with signs and wonders following Everywhere they were doing these things, mission trips, church plan evangelism, power of the Holy Ghost, life groups, power of the Holy Ghost, church services, one of them, the house shakes that they were meeting, and as they prayed for more boldness, as they were being persecuted, they didn't say, God, uh, just take us out of here, help us find amnesty. No, they said, God, send us back, but this time with boldness, and let's stretch out our hands to do miracles in your name. Community service? Imagine being around in those times, you know? Well, sorry, silver and gold have I none, but get up and walk. We'll talk about that next week. There came a time, there's a famous statement where somebody started walking around the church of Rome when it became in power around the time of uh, the Roman Catholic Church's development. And they said, now for the first time, the church can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. And also, it can no longer say, rise up and walk. And so it traded prosperity for the power of God. Now, you can have both. But we don't want to trade one for the other. One is more important than the other, and that is the power of God. The power of God was in their prayer meetings. It was in their fellowship. Their Bible college, what we would call their intensified discipleship as they raised each other up into the five-fold ministry. So we have just a few more moments that uh, I want to pray for us to do these things. Uh, to pray for you to do these things effectively. So each one of you, just write down about two or three of these things that stick out to you that you want God to utilize you in specifically right now in this time in your life, okay? Now, you may say, Joe, I want to go to to Kazakhstan and do missions. Okay, but I'm just talking right now. just, you know the ministries of the church. Hopefully, you see every one of these being enacted in our church, And I want you to see how you can do this. Where can you fit in? Where is the Lord calling you to serve? What things excite you? What things uh, motivate you to want to really become expert and expert at these things? Those of you who know that I went and got my doctorate, I'm halfway through it. I don't know what I'll do with my other half. I'm still praying on that. But my doctoral studies are in ministry. So By the world standard, I would be an expert in ministry. My doctorate is in ministry, D-Min, doctorate of ministry. And uh, so it's my passion to do these things. I write on these things. All of my books are written from this perspective. I have my first book coming out. Well, the Islamic and dating book would be two that didn't come from this perspective. But uh, those were more, one was a class that I had taken on Islam, and I turned it into a book, and another one was a sermon series. But this will be my first book coming out that will be strictly a book I tied a lot of time into, but it wasn't directly to ministry, and that's going to be a Pentecostal catechism. I'm coming up with a Pentecostal catechism that's going to probably have about uh, 300 questions and answers, and you'll be able to, and I'm thinking specifically for my children and for f- uh, families and devotionals, you'll be able to go through them in sets and chapters and do them, and so I, uh, I'm really encouraged by catechism. Catechisms go something like this. They start from the beginning of the Bible, work all the way through. There's many of them out there, many of them from the Reformation, and it will be something like this. Who is God? And you ask somebody that. And this was really during the time when people didn't know how to read and write. So they really came from an oral culture. But you can still read and write them. But they're done very well. Uh, It's it's meant to be done with oral and communication and relationships. So you can see a parent with their child. So you would say, who is God? And the child would say, God is one. And he is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the next question would be, what is the Trinity? The Trinity is three divine persons sharing one all powerful, all knowing, and ever present being. You know, who is the Father? The Father is the Creator, and blah, 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 blah. Who is the Son? Who is the Holy Spirit? What was the work of salvation? You know, it'll just keep going on down like that, and you can take them in chunks, and it's very encouraging. They have all the scriptures listed next to it. You can stop and read the scriptures, and so I actually have that book in the works right now. And uh, and then it gets a lot deeper than that. You know, why is there evil? You know, what is free will? Uh, what what is the duty of man in government? You know, what is an economy? What is what is a, a, a Buying and selling for, and there's a word, commerce. What is the purpose of commerce, etc.? cetera. And so you learn these principles. I've bought you some time. Have you wrote down two or three? Okay, let's go one at a time. Uh, Jackie, what do you want to do for the Lord? Discipleship, Bible college, and evangelism. Let's pray for Jackie to do these well. Lord, use her for your glory in Bible college, discipleship, and evangelism. Lord, give her your passion for these ministries. Give her leadership ability that people will follow her as she does them and that she'll change the world through them. In Jesus' name. I'm surprised you didn't say life group because I know you helped start a Spanish life group, but that's okay. There's so many to do. Yeah, most of you do all of them. You know, if you think about it, which one don't you do? You could even consider yourself helping to plant a church because eventually we're going to start another one. We're going to get to the second one eventually here. Okay, amen. We're going to run out of time. I can't pray for everybody. I really wanted to do that. But just give me one. I'll pray for you guys just real quick. Amy, what's one? Uh, evangelism. Evangelism. Bible college. Discipleship. you got so many to choose from prayer man. He is the renaissance man who does it all. And a renaissance man is the man who knows languages, art, and music. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of our our Lawrence there, which is wonderful. Uh, Julian. Fellowship. Fellowship. Love it. Church planning. Yes. Discipleship. Church Church planning. Evangelism. Wonderful. There is 10 of you. Uh, There's 10 of you here right now. Let's just pray for all 10 of you. Lord, we thank you for them. We pray that you'll bless them in evangelism, Bible college, fellowship, life groups, church planning, Lord. Oh, even as I'm praying right now, just name them out if I forgot a few. Lord, use us for your glory. Add to our number daily, oh God. We are in a free country. We have the opportunity to grow and prosper in this land and to build your church, Father. And I pray, Lord, that signs and wonders will follow our preaching. And even if we do get persecuted or suffer or or face hardships, Lord, we'll look to the disciples as our example that even when the people turned on them, Lord, the church kept growing and you were still providing for them in many ways, even miraculous ways at different times. So we pray for these dreams and visions, for these desires, rather, to turn into dreams and visions. And Lord, you will give them plans and words, God confirming it, and strategies, Father God, in partnership and resources, Father, to bring about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which you said that you would build and the gates of hell will not prevail against. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen on the count of three, say Chicago for Jesus. One, two, three. Chicago for Jesus. God bless you. Let's give it up for Jesus today.